Father, thank you that though we aren't worthy, Jesus is worthy. And he has chosen us. He's already provided for us to have salvation full and free. And Lord, help us to find a deeper confidence in that reality as a rock-solid foundation for our lives. Even when we go through difficulties, when we go through suffering, when we face trials. Father, we, we ask that we would hear your voice speaking to us through the power of your word. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Jack basically grew up in a library. He loved to read books. His parents loved to read books. And and he was constantly reading books. But something happened to Jack where one of his books suddenly didn't have the same value to him anymore. When he was almost 10 years old, Jack's mother got cancer. And Jack's mother died before his 10th birthday. And for Jack, this was... This shook him up. His mother had given him a Bible and and he no longer wanted to read that Bible. As he began to think about who this God was, he decided, you know what? This God just must be some vague abstraction. If, or maybe he's just cruel. Not sure which it is, but that's all he could come up with. A few years later, he was going to a school that had this crazy matron of the school who had some odd religious beliefs and that just confirmed things for him. And he said, you know what? This God just doesn't exist, and he became an atheist. For a number of years, he was an atheist. He went to Oxford University and began to learn to write, and he loved to write. He published his first book, and he loved to read. He continued to love to read, and he began to read some some amazing books by Christian authors, oddly enough. George MacDonald was one of his favorites. Uh, Chesterton was another of his favorites, and he was just amazed at the beauty of God that was revealed in these books. He began to have conversations with some others at Oxford and, and he began to realize that, that most of these people he was talking with, that he enjoyed uh, their company that were his friends, they were actually Christians. And so he actually surrendered to Jesus about 20 years later after having his mother dying and accepted Jesus into his life. Now you know him not probably as Jack, but you might know him as C.S. Lewis. I hope you have read some of his books, like Mere Christianity, one of the the best books describing what Christianity is all about. He's written so many books that have helped so many people to come in contact with Jesus. But you know, towards the end of his life, something took place. One of those books had impacted a particular lady who wrote him some notes about it, and her husband had passed away, and so she moved to the same city, and, and he actually supported her financially because he'd made a lot of money with his books. And, and before long, a relationship began to develop. His whole life, he'd been a bachelor, and he never planned to fall in love, but he fell in love with joy. And as they fell in love, he found a new purpose and meaning in his life. Now, Have you gone through difficult times in your life? Have you faced challenges like young little Jack faced in his life? Or maybe you're facing some right now. Or or maybe you've gone through some just recently, like Linda shared this morning. I want to invite you to go back to Revelation. And this time we're going to go to Revelation chapter 6. Because... I want you to think about this. In Revelation chapter 5, we've seen this entire heavenly universe worshiping the Lamb, saying, worthy, worthy is the Lamb to receive worship and glory and power and honor. And he, He is worthy because He loves us with a selfless love. 
And this God who desires us to choose to worship him is an amazing reality. And yet sometimes, I mean, last week we talked about how, hey, we sit here and we, we, we listen to this story about the universe worshiping this amazing God who laid down his life for us, and, and yet we sit here unmoved. And maybe it's because of some of the things that we go through in our lives, and that's what we begin to discover. Jesus wants for you and I to recognize the world that we live in and, and what we would face in our lives. Because after he receives this worship from all of creation and he's, he's received this scroll, he's taken this seat, he has the title deed for human history that's filled with lamentation, mourning, and woe. We were condemned to die, uh, to be separated from God by our own choices. And he was able to reverse that history by what he has done for us. And then chapter 6 comes. And it, doesn't, it starts off in the way you might expect Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. Right? This is what the emperor would ride after he had won a battle. This is the, the horse that signalized victory. And throughout Revelation, white represents Jesus. It represents uh, good. It represents God's people. He's riding on a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him. This is the victor's wreath, not like a kingly crown. So this is an overcomer. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Okay, so who opens the first seal? The lamb. When the lamb opens the seal, it doesn't tell us what's in the book, but it tells us what's taking place on this planet. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he received this worship from the Father, from from all creation, uh, recognizing what he had done. You look at what happens with the Christian church, and this aptly describes the first century. They went through some difficult times, but you see how the gospel went forward, conquering and to conquer. And it's pretty fascinating because if you, th- you wonder why, why, did, why was there so much power in the early church? What was in this writer's hand? And this represents the Christian church if you, if you study Revelation. What was in the writer's hand? A bow. Now, the interesting thing is the word used here for bow is based on the, it's only used one time in the entire Bible, and it's used here, but it's based on the word that is used in Revelation chapter 12 to describe something that's brought forth. Now, what's brought forth in Revelation chapter 12? A child. This woman, the church, brings forth a child who would be who? Jesus. Right? So, so, the only other time that this word is, the main times that it's used in Revelation is to refer to a bringing forth of Jesus. And what does the bow do? It brings forth an arrow. And if you look in Isaiah 40, 49, it talks about Jesus coming and him being like an arrow in the quiver of his father. It's pretty fascinating. You can read it later on. We're not going to have time to read it right now. But Isaiah 49 talks about Jesus being like an arrow, uh, like a quiver uh, an arrow in the quiver of his father. And that he goes out uh, to bring comfort to this planet. So, so this, this is a picture that, w- that we like to read about. We love to read the book of Acts and see how there's so much power and conversions are happening and people are accepting Jesus. 
there was difficult times. There was suffering. Paul went through so many stonings and, and being shipwrecked and all those things. But a lot of good is happening. And then the next seal is open. Chap- verse 3 of, of Revelation 6 continues. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. All right, so now it's an entirely opposite picture. Here you have a red horse, a fiery red horse. The only other time fiery red is used in Revelation is to refer to the fiery red dragon in Revelation chapter 12. So this isn't talking about a good horse. This isn't talking about the good things that are happening. This is talking about the opposite. And here you have a sword coming in response to the gospel message that happens. And Jesus said this. He said, I have come not just to bring peace on the earth, but to bring a sword. And when the gospel is shared, when the good news about who Jesus is, is shared, the odd thing is that God warns us about is, it doesn't just make friends with the people around you, but instead it can bring persecution. And you find that that's what happens next. As Satan sees that, Paul actually says in Colossians, that the gospel was taken to preach to every creature uh, on the planet. Every, everyone on the planet had, had received the gospel. Uh, the known world had received the gospel in Paul's time. And so Satan is not happy with that and begins to attack using persecution. And you see some of the worst persecution beginning to happen around the time that we read about last week with, with John on the Isle of Patmos. You have Nero, you have Domitian, you have these different emperors who rose up and they're just burning Christians, they're crucifying Christians. And then you have a guy named Tertullian who comes along and he says, you know what? The blood of martyrs is seed. The, the more you kill of us, the, the, the more that we multiply. And so Satan had to change tactics. And we see that when the next seal is open in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 5. When he had opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. So a black horse representing darkness, a pair of scales. Uh, We'll see why that is here. It goes on to say, And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So in times of famine, the Bible often refers to, or, or does refer to, a scale being used to measure food. Now imagine that, Times are so rough that you have to measure out how much food you eat in order to ration it. And when it says a denarius is, is what the cost of a quart of wheat was, uh, a quart of wheat was what a person needed to survive on a daily basis. So if you worked an entire day's wages and all you could come up with was enough food for you for that day, well, you might survive for a little while, but how do you pay for everything else? So that's why it goes on to say, but for barley, a day's wage could make three quarts of barley, which that would work out if you had a really small family. You could maybe earn enough for your wife and for a child, but after that, this is really difficult times that it's referring to, a famine. But Amos tells us that it's not just a famine that would come on the planet of food, but a famine for the word of God. And that's what we begin to see take place. There's a shift that happens where Though Jesus is worthy, though he's sitting on the throne, the Christian church, as it's being persecuted, it begins to look for shelter somewhere besides Jesus. 
And, and there's a problem in my life, in your life, when we look for shelter in anywhere else besides Jesus, if we look for anybody besides the Lamb who is worthy. And so you find that pretty soon Christianity is embraced by Constantine, an emperor who baptizes his army by marching them through a river and begins to, to come up with all of these new things to combine his empire, the pagans and the Christians together. He says, hey, let's worship on the venerable day of the sun. Let's have all of these things. Let's just combine. Let's all come together. And suddenly Christianity is the popular religion and everybody is a Christian. And so they're Christians, but they're compromising their faith in order to have power in order to have the government be a part of what they're worshiping, of their worship. So you see compromise coming in. It's the next thing that happens. And then you continue on. Revelation chapter 6. And, well, well, the good part at the end of that is, what does the last phrase say? It says, and do not harm the oil and the wine. All right, so though there's going to be a famine, though there's going to be this difficult time, the oil and the wine is going to be okay. Now, in an actual drought, you could have a drought that's bad enough where the wheat's not going to be able to grow, but you have your olive trees and you have your vineyard that's going to be able to t- have roots going deeper. So this is a, a picture of what could actually happen in agriculture, that they could continue to survive. But symbolically, looking at Revelation, which John is told that these are the things that are given to symbolize, so it's, it's full of symbols. Oil represents what in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. And wine, Jesus at the Last Supper, he said, take and drink this. It represents my blood, which is spilled for you. My life that I poured. It represents my selfless love for you. And so in the midst of the church beginning to become compromised, the church beginning to take on the power of the government, there are people who say, no, we're not going with it. You have the Waldensians, you have the Huguenots who said, no, we're going to do whatever it takes to preserve the word of God. And they're moving up into the mountains. They're, they're persecuted themselves. They're sewing uh, the word of God into to their, their garments so that they can go into the marketplaces and find people that they could share it with stealthily. So in the midst of all of this, what we have to recognize is that though we go through time periods in Revelation depicting different times, some of the principles apply throughout. And we'll see that more clearly as we get to the end here. Then we go on to verse uh, 7. It says, And then when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him, and power was given him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. If you read about the dark ages. You read about what took place. The world became a darker and darker place. And it became a place where physically death was a real problem. You have the bubonic plague that took millions and millions of lives. You have all of these wars that sadly are being waged by Christians and crusades and that type of things oftentimes. You have all of this death taking place, but a bigger picture than that is what began to take place in misunderstanding who God really was. And by the time you come to the 15th century when the Protestant Reformation is sparked, they've, they've totally lost their concept of who God is. This is. The Bible has been chained to certain, in certain buildings. You can't go and just read the Bible freely. And so they're no longer able to recognize who this God of love is. 
And to people's belief system, it totally is wrecked by that. And you think about how the church used death to scare people. Um, it's pretty sad to read about some of the people. Actually, in 1500, I'll tell you the story from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Anthony Parsons was a priest who began to study about Protestant theology and, and learned about this grace of Jesus Christ and about what the Bible really said. And as he began to study this, the archbishop in his area got really upset and said, okay, no, 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 you are going, you have to be persecuted. He tried to get him to recant and eventually took him and some friends who were all teaching the same things and went to, uh, to punish them, to, to burn them at the stake. And uh, I'll read it here from Fox's Books of Martyrs. It says, when they were brought to the stake, Parsons asked for some drink, which being brought him, he drank to his fellow sufferers saying, be merry, my brethren. And lift up your hearts to God. For after this sharp breakfast, I trust we shall have a good dinner in the kingdom of Christ, our Lord and our Redeemer. And then Parsons begins, it says, to to pull the straw near him that was going to light the fire. He begins to actually pull it up against where he's at there uh, so so that they can light the fire. And then he said to the spectators, this is God's armor, and now I am a Christian soldier prepared for battle. I look for no mercy but through the merits of Christ. He is my only Savior. In him do I trust. And they lit the fires, and he was burned. And the next thing he's going to know, he's going to get to, wow, those are awesome deer. That's so cool. (laughs) He's going, this is an amazing place to worship, by the way. You know, so many people wish they could worship in a place like this. But you imagine the next thing he knows, he sees the face, he's going to see the face of Jesus. And he's going to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he's going to to get to, to be with Jesus. Did he lose anything? If anything, we should mourn for his family and what they had to go through in seeing him do this if he had a family. If anything, we should mourn for his friends who watched him. But really, persecution cannot quench. Suffering cannot quench. Uh, Anything you go through in trials in your life cannot quench God's love to see you through. God's love will see you through any and every circumstance in your life. And you read here that it goes on to say, verse 9, When I opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? God, how long is this going to go on? How long am I going to be suffering? How long. And really, this is figurative language, just like when, when God came to Cain and said, the blood of your brother Abel is crying out to me from the ground. It wasn't really literally crying out to him, but this is figurative of all the suffering that's taken place. You have some estimates of 50 million Christians were martyred during this time period. 50 million people whose lives were taken. All of this suffering. And meanwhile, you have one who is worthy on the throne. One who is opening the seals. And, and why, we might wonder, isn't he stepping in to do something? So, as C.S. Lewis went to get married, he decided that he wanted to marry this, this lady, Joy. Shortly before she were, was, they were going to be married, he wrote this. 
I am very shortly to be both a bridegroom and a widower. You see, Joy, who was his fiance, was diagnosed with bone cancer, severe bone cancer, and he realized that she wasn't going to live long. And though finally after all these years he found love and he was going to be married, he said, I'm going to get married and then I'm going to be a widower. At first, she survived longer than expected and he was so thankful for that. But eventually she died. And he wrote a book actually on grief, observations on grief, And this is something he said. Meanwhile, where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Can you hear this amazing Christian man who wrote these books that drew so many people to Jesus? He's saying, How long, God, where are you? Judge, would you fix the problems on this planet? Do you recognize how crazy things have gotten? Where are you, God? Maybe you're wondering some of the same things today. Maybe you're you're questioning, well, how long is this pandemic going to go on? How long am I going to be going through this illness? How long am I going to have this difficulty in my family? How long, oh Lord? You are powerful. You are worthy. I want to believe that, but I'm going through some difficult stuff right now. I want to tell you something. The key that unlocks every other mystery is this. The cross of Jesus Christ. Did you notice that that's the emphasis throughout this chapter as again and again seal after seal is open? It's not the lion who's opening the seals. Who's opening the seals? Time and time again, it's the lamb when he opened. When the lamb opened the seals is how the chapter started. And that lamb is the lamb who took all of the woe, all of the lamentation, all of the suffering onto himself in the Garden of Gethsemane to the extent where he would have died had he not had that angel come down and lift him up. That God who went through all of the suffering that you will ever go through, that any human being on this planet will ever go through. Willingly, because he wanted for you to have hope. These same uh, four horsemen apply to all of our lives today. Because as we hear this reality about Jesus and and that Jesus loved us so much that he laid down his life for us and that 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 should make our lives better and that that we want to trust in him for eternal salvation, as we hear that, we have different ways of reacting. And Jesus encapsulated this in a parable. Now when he comes to John, What is he giving him when he shows him these horsemen running and he shows him these seals and he shows him these scrolls? He's giving him symbols in order to illustrate something. And when Jesus was here, how did he often teach? By parables. He would give a parable and he would illustrate the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus comes and he wants to illustrate the kingdom of heaven. And he says, hey, so a sower goes out to sow. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. A sower goes out to sow. And he throws out some seed, and that seed is snatched up by birds. And some of the seed that he throws out, it, it's, it, it springs up at first. It's in rocky soil. And, and because it doesn't have good roots, when the sun comes down, which is supposed to cause growth, that sun actually scorches it and it dies. 
And then he goes on to say that other seed fell on ground where there was thorns. And the thorns come up and they choke it out. And then other seed falls on good soil. And that good soil, it produces a hundredfold. And the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, this, this is kind of confusing. Could you just could you speak a little more plainly? I mean, they were fishermen, some of them. Maybe they didn't get farming, kind of like I don't get farming. Matt's been helping me out a little bit, and I'm going to maybe share a little bit of his wisdom this morning. And if, if I get it wrong, just go ask him a question, because I may be totally off. But look with me in Matthew chapter 13. When Jesus explains this parable, we find that this parable is actually very uh, parallel to the four horsemen of Revelation chapter 6. So here you find uh, Revelation chapter 13, verse 18 says, actually, let's skip down first, and we're going to go to verse 20. We're going to skip to the second type of soil. It says, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Right, so that's what the stony soil represents. Somebody receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So what is it that arises for the rocky soil hearers of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, the word of God? What is it that arises in their lives that caused them to not be able to endure? Persecution and tribulation. Did we see that in the four horses? That was the second horse, right? Satan tried to work through persecution and tribulation. And in your life, if you wonder why are these difficult things happening, Satan wants for you to get discouraged and not to cling to the gospel and the word of God. But there's good news. Let's keep going. Verse 22, now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. So here you have somebody that, that hears the word, but what, are the, what is it that stops the word from growing in his life? Riches, the cares of life. Any of you finances kind of distract you sometimes from thinking about God? Or the cares in your life distract you from thinking about God and from, from really trusting him that he can see you through and maybe even tempt you to want to compromise a little bit in your life because you think, man, I just got to do this in order to make ends meet. That's exactly what Satan does in our lives. If he can't get you by persecution, then he's going to work on getting you through compromise. And it's pretty fascinating because in the early church, or the church, I should say, later on, uh, when they when they enter this time period of compromise, it's pretty funny what's recorded about uh, one of the popes. This is in the book F.F. F. Bruce, uh, the book of Acts. F.F. F. Bruce wrote the book. According to Cornelius Alapid, Thomas Aquinas once called on Pope Innocent II when the latter was counting out a large sum of money. So he comes to see Pope Innocent II. He's counting a bunch of money. He says, you see, Thomas, said the Pope, the church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. True, Holy Father, was the reply. Neither can she say, now rise up and walk. You remember that story in Acts chapter 3 where Peter and John go to the temple to pray and there's a beggar there wanting alms and they say, silver and gold have we none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Thomas Aquinas says, yeah, it's great you have, you have wealth. 
but you don't have the power anymore. You're missing the power of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus goes on to uh, continue. Actually, let's jump back and we're going to look at um, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. So, distorting doctrine, confusing us, keeping the word of God from us is another way that that the enemy works. He tries to to distort our picture of who God is, just like he had done where you have Martin Luther who's whipping himself in order to find repentance, who's walking up and down steps on his knees just pleading that God would somehow give him forgiveness. And suddenly he realizes that the Bible says the just shall live by faith. And this is the beautiful thing. When Jesus goes on to describe the good ground, he says, but he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. How do we become good ground? You know, sometimes I thought, well, you know, there's just going to be four types of people and some people are just going to be the thorns, some are going to be the stony ground, and some too bad for them. But I've watched our farm recently. And if you haven't gone up there lately, I encourage you to go up there. Because there are amazing things happening. Have you ever looked at our ground around here? It's really hard. If you haven't tried gardening in Templeton, or maybe it's not just Templeton, maybe it's just here, I don't know. But, but our ground, you try to dig down. I mean, Matt will sometimes say like, hey, okay, so we're going to plant carrots here. Okay, great. Do we just throw the seeds in there? He's like, no, you need to get this big thing and you need to stick it in the ground and you need to fork uh, the ground, and it's like, how do I even stick it in the ground? The ground is so hard. So just like you have this hard ground and this misunderstanding of God that needs to be turned to good soil, there's hope. In fact, after Matt went on his vacation, the next day he comes back, and there's this huge part of the field that hasn't been planted yet, and I'm like, well, I wonder when we'll do work on that. Man, that's going to be a lot of work. There's, the ground looks really, really hard. The very next day, he's out there on a tractor ripping up the whole field, and I'm looking in the... Suddenly, the ground is transformed by that amazing tractor that we have up there. You plow through hard ground and it becomes soft. But not only that, what about rocky ground? Well, I went to Matt and I asked him about this because I'd heard him talking to somebody that came up on the farm. And he, he described that dirt, really, you could look at it as broken down rock. And ultimately, rocks and rocky ground can be transformed into good soil. Now that might take a long time period. It takes a lot of forces to do that. But the reality is that rocks can become good soil in our lives. How about thorny soil? So I was pulling weeds up at the farm and I asked Matt, I was like, hey, so we wouldn't want to put these in the compost pile, right? Because then we're going to take this and we're going to put it and make good soil out of it and then we'll have weeds growing there, right? He said, no, 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 it's fine. We'll put it in the compost pile. So long as the compost temperature gets above 140 degrees, it'll kill all the weed seeds and that will become good soil. So I don't know what you have in your life. Maybe you have a misunderstanding of, of, of God and what you need to do. It's to let the Word of God plow up the ground in your life. Just, just give Him the opportunity to get in and reveal who He really is. Or, or maybe you might be that stony ground and you need to 
when you go through those trials, recognize that those trials, and you, when you fall on the rock of Jesus Christ, they can actually transform your life into actually becoming good soil. Or maybe you have riches in your life. That's the thorny ground. Riches. Maybe you have cares in your life. Whether it's riches or whether it's cares or whether it's both, what do you need to do? You need to give it all to the Lamb who was slain for you. And as you give it to Him, He will transform it into good soil. You know, wealth can become some of the greatest things for the furtherance of the gospel if we invest it in the kingdom of heaven. That's why Jesus talks so much about money. He's like, hey, give and it will be given to you. Don't worry. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added unto you. Just be all in for God and the soil of your heart will become good soil. If only Pope Innocent had realized that. It wasn't about the gold, but it was about a connection with the one who loved him more than his own existence. Friends, the good news is there's three types of bad soil, but there's one type of good soil, and Jesus is in the process of transforming every heart that's willing into good soil so that we all can be a part of that church that goes forward conquering to conquer. Because if you look throughout Christian history, God has always had people who continued to cling to him, who had the oil of the Holy Spirit, the wine of the blood of Christ, trusting in who Jesus was. And Jesus saw them through each and every step of the way. Acts of the Apostles describes what was the power of the early church this way. So that the disciples after the transfiguration of Christ, it is written that at the close of the wonderful scene, they saw no man save Jesus only. Jesus only. In these words is contained the secret of the life and power that marked the history of the early church. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. That is the only answer. That is the only way to be able to endure in the midst of suffering. And you realize that that even psychiatrists who don't believe in Jesus have come to this recognition of the power of self-sacrificing love. I've been reading this book, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl ended up deciding to stay in Germany, though he had a chance to go off to America. That's another story. He was a psychiatrist. He was working on a book. He had his manuscript, but he was a Jew. And so he was taken eventually, to Auschwitz. When he got to Auschwitz, he tried to cling to his manuscript. He tried to cling to everything, just like other people were clinging to things. And they're like, no, we're taking it all. We're saving every hair on your body. You are now a number. And they put a number on his arm. No longer did it matter what he had been in his life. And they threw him out to do hard labor, feeding him just a little bit of watery soup each day, a little tiny bit of crust of bread. And Day in and day out, they would watch their friends around them as they were, the ribs were, were showing and they would say, uh, he's the next one to go. They began to evaluate people based on how long they're going to last because you see, the Nazis were just working them until they died. They were getting the last bit of energy out of them possible and then they would take them and they would gas them. <laughs> and so in this book, he's, he's approaching it as a psychiatrist, trying to analyze what was going on in their minds, what were their thought processes, what was happening. And he says something fascinating about who it was who was able to endure. He said, only in this way can one explain the apparent apparent paradox that some prisoners of a less hardy makeup often seem to survive camp life better than did those of a robust nature. 
It's like, hey, there were weak guys there that managed to survive better than other people. In order to make myself clear, I am forced to fall back on a personal experience. Let me tell what happened on those early morning march when we had to march to our work. So he begins to tell about how they'd have to march off in the cold, dark hours in the morning, and they had to march in a certain cadence, and if they didn't, they'd be kicked and they'd be punched. And then they'd have to go past and they'd have to take their calf off in the cold in order to, I believe it was to make sure they didn't have lice or something like that. Put it, the cap back on. And then he picks up the story here. He says, We stumbled on in the darkness over big stones and through large puddles along the one road leading from the camp. The company guards kept shouting at us and driving us with the butts of their rifles. Anyone with very sore feet supported himself on his neighbor's arms. Hardly a word was spoken. The icy wind did not encourage talk. Hiding his mouth behind his upturned collar, the man marching next to me whispered suddenly, if our wives could see us now, I do hope they are better off in their camps and don't know what's happening to us here. That brought thoughts of my own wife to mind, and as we stumbled on for miles, slipping on icy spots, supporting each other time and again, dragging one another up and onward, nothing was said, but we both knew each of us was thinking of his wife. Occasionally, I looked at the sky where the stars were fading and the pink light of the morning was beginning to spread behind a dark bank of clouds. But my mind clung to my wife's image, imagining it with uncanny acuteness. I heard her answering me, saw her smile, her frank and encouraging look. Real or not, her look was then more luminous than the sun which was beginning to rise. A thought transfixed me, and here's the key point. A thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers, the truth that love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. I understood how a man who has nothing left in this world still may know bliss, but in only for a brief moment in the contemplation of his beloved. said, all I needed was a contemplation of my beloved, and the agony was taken away. Love continued to see him through. He said that this was why some of the weaker people were able to sustain themselves and be able to endure through the camp life. You know, just this, this past week, Leah and I, after the girls had gone to bed, we were talking and she said, you know what? It's been this month. It will be 15 years since we've been friends and hanging out. Wow, 15 years. I was thinking about that. You know, sometimes I think years pass by so fast that a decade, I mean, that's like nothing. And then I thought about 15 years. Think about all that's changed. And I, I told her, you know, wow, a lot has happened in 15 years. Think about who we were when we first met and and who we are now. I mean, there's a whole lot of change. And she asked me, she said, well, what's your favorite memory from those 15 years? And I'll tell you, I didn't even have to think about it. Instantly, the first thought that came to my mind was, well, 15 years ago when I gave my heart to Jesus, this whole, my whole life changed. Falling in love with Jesus, getting to spend time with him every day, that's changed my whole life. But instantly the next thought came. But the next thing was three years later when we got married. That, falling in love with you, incredible. And then instantly the next thought came. 
just a year and a half ago, having our daughters, that would be my third favorite memory. And you know, Leah said, well, what about some of the other memories? Like, those are really the first ones that come to your mind? Like, think about when you, when you climbed Mount Shasta, you came back raving about that trip, how beautiful it was. You got to ski down Mount Shasta. You got to climb with an ice, ice axe and crampons. It was like your dream of mountaineering come true. It's like, oh yeah, that's an amazing memory. I didn't even think about that. It's like, well, what about when you went to Belize on the mission trip and, and you got to go snorkeling and you love snorkeling and you're there in the Caribbean and you're in this beautiful water and you're underneath it swimming with these beautiful fish. Oh yeah, that was an amazing memory. I didn't even think about that. Oh, oh, what about, and the list could go on and on. What about when we were gifted with a, a trip for our honeymoon to Hawaii? I didn't think about Hawaii or, or how God enabled us another time to go to Hawaii. I, I didn't think about times backpacking. I didn't think about any of those things and stuff in my life didn't matter. You know what really matters in the end? It's love. And if for Victor, Frank, Victor Frankel, to contemplate the love that his wife, as imperfect as it was, had been given to him, how much more does the mystery of the love of Jesus Christ sustain us to keep on going day in and day out? That's what the Apostle Paul ends up saying in Hebrews chapter 11. He ends it by saying how, hey, some endured scourgings and mockings, yes, also chains and imprisonment, They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were thrown into prison. All of these terrible things happened. But then he says, with all of these witnesses surrounding us, let us run the race with endurance, casting aside everything that encumbers us, all the sins which enchain us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, And that is worth everything. So today, I just want to encourage you that just because he's worthy, just because he's on the throne, doesn't mean that life gets peachy here on earth. But what we need is a picture of a God of love that will see us through, that will continue to give us the strength and energy to endure in anything we face. And the Apostle Paul who went through stonings and mockings and he went through so many different things, shipwrecks, he was able to say, hope, in Romans 5, 5, does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in your hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given to us. I just want to close by allowing you to meditate on this song, The Love of God. Think about the grandness, the beauty of the love of God. And don't let this be a momentary time during this song, but let that be the constant fixation of your life. And it's most clearly revealed in the Bible. Fixate on God, His character, and His love is revealed in the Bible because the mystery of the cross unseals every other mystery in our lives. You believe it? Love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry? 
or could the scroll contain the whole they stre- those stretched from sky to, nor could the scroll contain the whole those stretched from sky to sky what an amazing reality the incredible love of god let's pray that god will make our hearts good soil that he will make us a part of that church that goes forth conquering and to conquer Father in heaven, I don't know where each of my friends are at this morning. Maybe for some of us, we're feeling the persecution and tribulation of the red horse period. And, and we're, we're questioning whether this is really worth it. And Father, I pray that we would look to the Lamb and that we would see your love and that you would give us strength to endure. Maybe today we're a part of that group that's compromising, that, that has the, the riches and the, the cares of life and we're, we're wanting to embrace Another solution besides Jesus. Father, if we're a part of that black horse today, then I pray that you would break up that thorny ground in our hearts and turn it into good soil. Father, maybe today um, we have a little bit of that pale horse in us and we've really died in our understanding of who you are. We've come to totally misunderstand the God of love that you are. Lord, don't let Satan snatch up the seed that you've sown in our hearts today, but we pray that we would allow your word to plow our hearts to be good ground so that your seed can bear fruit in our lives. Father, make us good ground. Make us conquerors because you are worthy. May Jesus only be our every thought. May we cling to the image, the the sight of our beloved who gave his life on the cross for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.